Okay, I like that. Inevitability of truth and the eventual triumph of right. New to our detective series. Is that interesting to anybody? I just didn't know. Like it just they make such a big point of it in the movie. You know, they really want to talk about that, and that's not something that's again that's new to what we are looking at. Um, I don't think that's really been present in any of the other ones. It's like implicit in Fargo, but it's it's not stated as text. Well, if you watch the TV show. <laughs> <laughs> not going to watch your fucking TV show. <laughs> Dude, watch the Fargo TV show. You should. I have so many other things to watch. No, 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 no. No, there's Fargo and then there's like Breaking Bad, The Wire, and The Sopranos. And Fargo and I, is the and easiest I still haven't, of all of them. And I watch. still haven't finished The Wire or The Sopranos. <laughs> That's fine, because you can only, you need to watch like 10, 11 episodes of Fargo, and you have a complete story on your hands. It's true. It's true. Or one season of The Wire, because they're all complete stories. Or one season of The Wire, but just, just start with Fargo. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Not Your Father's Movies. I'm Vito. I'm Jesse, and we are dad fathers, joined by another dad father who's been a dad father before. Dad Father Letney, would you please state your name and credentials? (laughs) (laughs) Super strong start, guys. Super strong start. (laughs) Yeah, I gotta keep it going because Mike is not here and that just breaks the flow. It's always, I'm Vito, I'm Mike, and I'm Jesse. It's so simple. But no, it just goes to me and I'm number two and it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good. We need Mike. He's out in the wilderness somewhere. I, I assume camping. He could have just run off to be a wild man and live his dreams, like he said in the Nomadland episode, of touring the country in a van. Uh, that might be happening. But we're just going to assume for now it's camping, right? Can we just assume that? Yeah. He's camping uh, on top of a mountain with all of his kids and his wife. That's right. A mountain. Mm-hmm. We're just going to say that. I, I was going to go with valley, but it's probably a mountain. You're right. But Lenny is here. Lenny, say something to our lovely listeners. Hey, guys. Yeah, I'm Lenny, and I am neither a dad nor a father, but big fan of the podcast and occasional guest. Yeah, yeah, no, we love having you, and uh, yeah, hopefully we'll just keep having you more and more often. The more Lenny, the better in my book. Uh, but yeah. today, today, we are covering the final episode in our final movie in our detective series. Uh, it's Knives Out. Very excited to do this one, and this was this was one you had a strong uh, attachment to, right, Jesse? I mean, yeah, because I guess when I was coming out of my I don't watch movies phase because I was only watching TV shows, I watched this and I was just like, oh, you know what? Recent movies that come out don't actually suck. They can be <laughs> all right. They can be fun. They can be entertaining. They can go against screen and still work with it. And that's what I found in Knives Out. So I really wanted to put this in as like the new kind of like modern whodunit by ryan johnson and i think this fits perfectly with our progression of detective movies that we've done so far actually that is is a good point that you make because uh moving you know usually when we do nostalgia we're usually talking about a movie that we've known about for a long time but since this came out in 2019 you know it's still actually like pretty fresh just a couple years ago (laughs) 
but I remember going to being very excited to see this and going to the theaters, you know, back when that was just a commonplace thing. And you were, you were like six inches away from a stranger and they breathed on your face and you didn't love it, but you know, you just lived and it. They breathed into your popcorn. Sometimes they reached into your popcorn accidentally. Sometimes they puked on you from the back. Mm-hmm. Things happen in theaters. Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, but I went to see it and I, I just had such a good time with it. It I love it when a movie surprises you, especially when it knows that you're trying to figure it out. And it's like, uh, 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 not today, man. Not today. I'm, I'm five steps ahead of you. You don't even know. You think you know where this is going? You do not. Yeah. You do not. Whole, this whole movie is basically what's his face from Jurassic Park saying, nah, uh, uh. <laughs> you didn't uh, say uh, the magic uh. word. <laughs> <laughs> Nedry. Dennis Nedry. Yeah. Um, big old Wayne Knight just wagging his, his figgle, finger or, at you. Or is it Nedis Dendry? No, <laughs> but we will settle that when we do Jurassic Park someday. I know, I know, people have been clamoring oh, shit, to see that yeah, one. We have to do Jurassic Park. Yeah, how come that's never even come up in any of our conversations? <laughs> I love Jurassic Park so much. We'll have to do it, but yeah, that, that's just my nostalgia. As I, I watched it, I really enjoyed it, and then actually, as I rewatched it over the years since then, you know, with my wife or at home, just wanted to throw something on. I, I, I like it more, and this last time that I watched it is probably my fourth time, third time. I really like this now. And I thought I liked it back then. But what do you think? What do you think, Lenny? Where did you come at this from? Did you have any any hot takes here? Um, well, so when I first watched this when it came out, or like a couple months after it came out, I really didn't like it that much. I didn't like it for two reasons. One, I knew Daniel Craig from the Bond movies and from Layer Cake. So I had this image of him as this super cool, suave, just badass, awesome guy. And the the accent was is pretty over the top and kind of silly. And he's kind of a silly character. Um, so I just, that was offensive to me. Like it just ruined <laughs> Daniel Craig. Um, <laughs> so I couldn't get, I couldn't get past that. And then the other reason I didn't like it is I have a super weak stomach for puke in movies. Like I can get a lot in movies, but if there's puke involved, that's like a big negative for me. And there was puke right at the end of the movie, right in the face. Yeah. So, <laughs> There is, there is, taste in my mouth. There's mouth to face projectile <laughs> that happens. Yeah. <laughs> um, but since then I've seen it. I saw it once last year and then once today before the podcast and I liked it progressively more and more. So yeah. Yeah. Huge fan now. Nice. Nice. That's awesome. Cool. Uh, it's just nice when, when you can encounter something that you don't like, but you, you kind of know there's something there that you do. And when you can kind of do that process of coming around to it, I actually love coming around to movies. I love making really strong statements being like, I hated that. That was terrible. <laughs> and about three years later, when someone references the fact that I said that I'm like, no, actually it's pretty good. <laughs> My bad. I was wrong. Is that going to be the little things for you in a couple of years? In about three years, I'm going to write a 1500 word uh, essay about the hidden genius and unappreciated brilliance of little things. Um, I'm setting up a lot of work for future me. <laughs> I am looking forward to reading that. <laughs> no. uh, that'll be a nice apology to Jared Leto. Yes, exactly. I'm so sorry, Jared Leto, uh, that I did this. You know what? We've gotten sidetracked on Jared Leto just too, too much this year. Too many times. He's come up way too often. He's not even in this movie. So I think maybe we should we should carry on. Do you think he'll be in Knives Out 3? I mean, why not? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone else is, right? What if the same character from Little Things comes back in, in Knives Out 3? Nice. And what if he still didn't do it? <laughs> and what if, what if, grand theory, Knives Out is just 
the prequels to the James Bond movies. What if, like, and what Rob if Rob becomes we need we need to we need to make you look younger. Lose the southern accent. Adopt an English one. <laughs> Lift these weights. Stop talking about donuts. <laughs> Become depressed. Sleep with lots of women. It's like, oh I, I won't I won't mind if I do. But then talking about uh, our cast and crews, this is a big this is a big Hold on. This is... My nostalgia. Oh, sorry. I thought you already did it. I sort of did. I you know what? All right, I'll just bring no, up something can... else later. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to step on you. I don't want to step on you. Go on. You know, I'm just making more work for you. Go on. That's fair. (laughs) Got a lot to cut in this first 20 minutes. Holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) At least 10 minutes so far. (laughs) So cast and crew, uh, this is a huge movie. It's like an internet meme now about the casting of Knives Out 2. um, Who's in it? My wife predicted that my mom would be cast next, uh, which I think is a pretty fair prediction. Jesse is already in it. I'm waiting on my call. I hope it's going to come soon. You know, I don't want to put any pressure, but hopefully soon. Lenny, have you been... I'm the murderer. (laughs) (laughs) Lenny, have you been contacted by by Ryan Johnson? Um, I signed an NDA, so I can't disclose that information. (laughs) So he did. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I'm still here, and I'm I'm looking at my phone, Ryan. Uh, But this is written, directed, and produced by Ryan Johnson. Um, At this point, I think everyone knows him as the director of the most polarizing movie of the last 20 years. (laughs) Star Wars The Last Jedi. Also the writer of that movie. We all have takes about Last Jedi. I don't know if we need to do them here. <laughs> no, we don't. We could just move on because he does have better movies, right? That's hard to say. But he does have other movies. <laughs> um, uh, where would you posit that The Last Jedi is his best? Is that peak Ryan Johnson? No, I, I would I would say it's it's between Looper and Brick for me. I really like both those movies a lot. And Brothers Bloom is very, very good. His most important work, though, for me, really is that he directed the music video for this small band, especially back back then when he did it, you know, mid-2000s. The Mountain Goats, he did the music video for their song Woke Up New. And it's fantastic. It's fantastic. It's so weird. There's clearly no budget at all. It's just the Mountain Goats in a room, just this small band of guys. And as the song goes on, it's just him moving a camera to different monitors and just showing the reflection of monitor and monitor and monitor and monitor and like the way that everything is boxed in kind of gives you the claustrophobic feeling of the song. And he's just such a young man when he did it. And it's such impressive work. When you see that, you're like, this guy's going somewhere. He's he, And he did. He, he's on top now. He's like one of the few people that's still just making whatever he wants to make. Uh, and it all started from there. But for in my heart, he's actually one of the first, the first podcast episode I remember listening to. I distinctly remember is I was working my third job as a teenager uh, trimming roses for this elderly Italian man in my parish. And I was out there and I had my headphones on and it was an episode of the Slash Filmcast. It was one of their very, very early ones. Like before Jeff Kanata, there was this guy, Adam Quigley, who was the third host of the show. I was a big fan of Adam, loved him a lot. But they had on Ryan Johnson because his new movie Brick was, de- his new movie uh, Brothers Bloom was debuting. And they were just talking about how much they loved Brick and like how exciting it was. And that's really what kind of set me into like the film critical thinking podcast talking world is just that in that this guy who was like had this movie with Mark Ruffalo and Adrian Brody and it was coming out soon. He came on this little podcast, this little movie review website. And he's like, yeah, I'll talk to you guys. And he's been on so many times ever since. And he's like stayed friends with the guys. 
And it's really cool to see that happen as I've grown up, this podcast has grown up, Ryan Johnson's grown up. He means a lot to me. Yeah, I really nerd out over this guy. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. I will say that I do love the Brothers Bloom. And I haven't seen Looper in a long time. I remember it being interesting. And did, that's, did you not yeah. see Brick? You didn't see Brick? I don't think I've seen Brick. Oh, Brick is great, dude. Brick is really good. It's uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and he plays like a, like a, he's a high school student, right? But he's also a detective, and he's trying to figure out his girlfriend, his ex-girlfriend disappeared, and he can't quite break it. But the way that the high school is run is kind of like a mafia. So there's like oh, yeah, crime bosses in, you know, <laughs> like the main crime <laughs> boss, he's like, he's like 24. So they call him like the old man, and he's got a cane, and he rides around in the back of a minivan with like a floor lamp that he clicks on. <laughs> And the whole inside of the minivan is like draped with curtains. So it's really dark. Like, come in, sit down. <laughs> it's super cool. Um, that almost sounds like that old Disney TV show recess mixed with, yeah. uh, mixed with uh, a thriller. It is. And it's actually, it's really heartfelt and touching too. I, I really like that movie. Um, oh, cool. But he's also directed three episodes of Breaking Bad. The really good ones, The Fly, 51, and Ozymandias, the ones I think you can really remember. So yeah. The Fly, a lot of people hate, but I, I, do. I really like The Fly. I'm the a huge really Fly fan. Yeah, yeah, me too. There's a whole episode where they're just losing their minds over a fly. Yeah, <laughs> That's it. That's all that's happening. He's just trying to get rid of that one fly, that one imperfection in his lab. Mm-hmm. It's one of those episodes where it's clearly like your budget was too big, so they had to do something, and they filled it with, with something kind of semi-heartfelt and and kind of out there. But, yeah, you really get a feel for uh, his name. Walt? Walter White. You get a feel for Walter White in that moment. Wait, but what's 51 Ozymandias? I feel like Ozymandias is a big one. Yeah, Ozymandias is, I think, the like the second or third to last episode. That's where stuff is really crashing down, I think. And then 51... Mm. SEC, Raimi offers Hank the position of ASAC. Hank accepts, even though his pursuit of Heisenberg will be given to a field agent. Oh, Skyler gets in the pool, remember? At the oh, party. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, they try to steal the barrel. Actually, I do remember this one. This one's really good. It's a big story episode. They try to steal the barrel? The barrel of methylamine that they had, and but there's like a there's a GPS tracker on the bottom, so they can't take it. That's when they start hitting trains. That happens like a few episodes later, right? With Jesse so, Barnes. Yeah, because yeah. this is still the fourth season, so that's the that's the, the Todd. 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 Oh yeah. And Ozymandias is the fourteenth episode of the fifth season and the sixtieth episode of the series. This episode's narrative concludes the previous episode's cliffhanger and sees the death of Hank and Stephen. All right, that's a big deal. Yeah, the big ones. Oh, and I also like, so we got a, uh, Ryan Johnson also got an Oscar nomination for, for best original screenplay for this movie. His next two movies, Netflix purchased, <laughs> everyone knows this, uh, but he's also married to Karina Longworth, who is host of this really great podcast called You Must Remember This, which is like a movie historical podcast. It's really good. Um, very good interviews on that. Uh, cool. I think people should check that out. But he's, he's going to be directing two more movies, you say? Yes, indeed. What are those two more movies? Just so, just for my own clarification. Oh, you're oh you you're, you're confused, Jesse. I see. Let me let me solve this for you. It's a, it's knives out again, and then knives out face the music. Knives <laughs> out again. When's knives out electric boogaloo? <laughs> That's what it should have been. I I think that he messed up. When's knives in? 
Yeah. <laughs> you go with the fast naming. Like <laughs> Knives 3. <laughs> knives. Yeah. Out the the Knives saga. <laughs> out 5. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> two out, two knives. <laughs> Georgia Drift. I think this brings us to Daniel Craig. <laughs> it does, but just real quick, I think the second movie should be Knives Out 2. No, sorry, Knives In question mark. Because we got Knives Out, you know, Knives In. <laughs> Anyone liking this? Is there just going to be a Knives Out with an exclamation point then? Knives Out? That's this knives one. In? It's this one. What? Isn't there an exclamation mark when it, when they show it in the movie? Oh, no. Its official title is Knives Out, though. It's oh, just okay. nothing. So then the third one is knives is n- knives akimbo exclamation mark. <laughs> this all right the the penultimate knives out will be knives out ellipses and then the ultimate one will be knives out period. Or will it be knives ellipses and then the last one will be ellipses out. Daniel Craig is in this movie, right? Daniel Craig's in this movie. Uh, he's James Bond. Been James Bond for a long time. We all love him and know him as that. But he does do different stuff sometimes. Like if you saw him a few years ago in Logan Lucky, that's where he first tries out the bizarro accent. Um, he's very good in that. It's Joe Bang. Uh, he's also the really creepy dude. The Not the really creepy dude. He's the son in uh, Road to Perdition. You know, the ultimate, actually, the bad guy in that one. Paul Newman's son. Ooh, I'll, yeah, I love that movie. Future episode, yeah. for sure. Oh, oh for sure. We almost covered it like three times this year, so it's coming soon. <laughs> uh, Connor Rooney in that one. Yeah, Connor he's great Rooney, in that. Yeah. He shows up in a lot of random movies. He does, and he does do different things, too, that are not Bond-related, like he did the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Um, I thought he was very good in that. And um, Cowboys and Aliens. Let's I saw not that. forget that one. <laughs> I saw that in a drive-in movie theater on the night of its premiere. That's the way to see that. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only way you should have ever seen that movie. I'm pretty sure it's in the $2 bin at Walmart now. Yeah. Oh, for sure. If not, they don't just, the greeter just hands it to you when you leave. <laughs> like, did you want this? We have so many of them. And you're like, oh, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, the girl with I, the dragon tattoo. Yeah. I haven't seen that one, but I've heard about it. It's 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 rough. It's, it's yeah. a really rough watch. <laughs> Remember the, the the trailer when it came out? It it came up. It's zooming in on the house. We got that immigrant song playing the cover by Trent Reznor and Karen O. And it just goes the feel bad movie of the season. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do. Oh. And it did. It, it made me feel really bad. <laughs> it heavily features sexual violence. Yeah, a lot of it. A lot of it. I don't know what else. He's really good in Defiance. Defiance is fun. Yeah, I don't know. And you mentioned Layer Cake, right? Like, do you like, you really like Layer Cake, don't you, Lightning? That may be a little strong. I enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I, it's I a great really movie. I think um, I fell asleep. Okay. Yeah, I don't know if I've even finished it. Okay, but then we also have Chris Evans, everyone's everyone's favorite Captain America. I, I know that I know that Sam Wilson is now Captain America after Falcon and Winter Soldier, but our favorite one is Chris Evans. The original Captain America. And also, way more shocking to me, the star of Snowpiercer. Yes. Bong Joon-ho's uh, meditation on class warfare and struggle <laughs> aboard a futuristic train in a never-ending wasteland. <laughs> it's so bizarre. I've seen that movie. I liked it. I had no idea that was Chris Evans until just a few minutes ago. And it, it blew my mind. 
he has a beard. I think that's what it is. It's a that beard just... and, the, and the hat. Yeah, and it just changes his entire face. Yes. I know Chris Evans by his face, and that did not look like Chris Evans right there. So <laughs> no kudos sir. to him for fooling me. <laughs> He's also had kind of a funny career because he does – he hasn't really tried very hard to do a lot of other dramas or, or anything like that. He's been in seven comic book movies prior to the first Captain America. You know, I, I was going to say that his role as Johnny Storm was pretty dramatic. It's, my it's melodramatic. <laughs> <laughs> It is, uh, it is something. But so it starts with Fantastic Four playing Johnny Storm, right? Then he's in the animated Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. He plays Casey. You remember that movie? Is that is that the TMNT movie? TMNT. Yeah, yeah. baby. That movie, because I, I still kind of like it. I think it's really cool. I still think I it's it. pretty cool, too. I've seen it a lot. I really like that movie. <laughs> That's going to be in our uh, not Disney animated movie series. I haven't seen it in 10 years. Uh, I don't know what it's going to be like. We'll see. But then there's Fantastic Four 2. Then there is Push. Remember Push? Oh, Push, the alternate X-Men movie. Yes, it's not very good. It's really... I do... All I remember is that weird scene where they're controlling guns with their mind and they're going up behind the pillars. I thought that was really cool. Still that stuck was really with me. Cool. And I don't remember anything else other than that girl is in it who is also in a lot of other things around that time. What uh, is her Camille name? Bell. Yeah. Camille Bell? And Dakota Fanning. Interesting. Dakota Fanning. That. That's who it is. Yeah. That's who I'm thinking of. Um, so that's based on a graphic novel. But then there's The Losers, which is just one of the most terrible things I've, I've ever witnessed. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so bad. It's awful. I, I hate it. That's then there's got eat losers for breakfast. So it's like watching your breakfast on screen. And you're like, uh. It's true. I, I don't even like this. It's it, it's the worst thing I've ever seen Idris Elba be in. And it's the worst thing I've seen Zoe Zaldana be in. It's the worst thing I've seen Jeffrey Dean Morgan be in. And it's by far... The, no, it's not the worst thing I've seen Chris Evans be in. That's Oh, that's, that is a low blow. That's Fantastic Four. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer. That's true. That could be it. But then we got uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Remember he plays the movie star, Jason Lee? Nope. Not you don't remember all. that? No. It's been a long you're, time since I've seen Scott Pilgrim. You're going to hear two clicks. One is me hanging up the phone, and the second is me pulling the trigger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he plays He plays like the movie star that used to date Ramona back when they were like in high school. And he beats okay. Scott up, and then he and then he, they do the, the skateboard battle. <laughs> oh, where he skateboards down the giant ramp? Yeah. yeah I bet you right. can't do a grindy thing <laughs> on, that, on that pole there. <laughs> Uh, and then the last one is, um, or is that the last one? Yeah, that's the last one. And then we're at uh, Captain America: First Avenger. So, crazy career for that guy. But moving on, we got uh, Anna Darmus, right? Blade Runner twenty forty nine, and upcoming No Time to Die with Daniel Craig. And can I just mention it's really weird that she's in that movie. She's a Bond girl with Daniel Craig. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she's a Bond girl in that movie. Whereas in this movie, she's. Uh... She's a nice nurse. Yeah. Like she's, she's a hero. Yeah. It's she's definitely like, more of like a father daughter relationship in this movie. Yeah. Uh, so it's pretty yeah. strange. It's going to be really weird to watch No Time to Die and see that dynamic because yeah. like she is like a huge draw for me in this movie. Part of the reason why I really like this movie is like her character as the nurse, right? Uh, the one taking care of the grandfather because I've had 
both my grandmothers be in this exact situation where they've needed someone like full time. So uh, my families collectively have hired people to take care of my grandparents or my grandmothers on both my mom's and dad's sides um, before they died. And both became super close to the family. One of them so much so that like she has her whole family like living with my grandfather right now. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like oh, way wow. after the fact. Yeah, like and it's great. My grandfather isn't alone. It's a it's a, an amazing setup. Um, That's yeah. really cool. Yeah, like this, like like I find this character so compelling, and like it's yeah, there's someone with a genuinely good heart and not so anti-Bond girl that it kind of bugs me that she's like a Bond girl in the next movie because like I kind of hope they do something like different because they, they there are there are several other women that are cast in that movie that that could play that role and I, I don't know the, the 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 recent Bonds have been a little bit more respectful than past Bonds have been towards the the female actors and I'm hoping that maybe she's one of those cases she can just sort of slide in and like be cool but not um, a sex object that'd be cool yeah yeah, that would be really awesome because uh, people, hope. characters like this deserve more praise because they're real, they exist, and they're wonderful. I hope to have somebody like that by my side when I am older. I want someone to curse at me and, and I can like curse back at them. And, like <laughs> I can, they can make fun of me for how bad I am at playing this game. It just sounds yeah. great. I'm going to kick your ass. <laughs> <laughs> But we got to, then we got Jamie Lee Curtis, just the legendary, the legendary Jamie Lee Curtis. I have met Jamie Lee Curtis very briefly. Um, she was very, very nice, very, very That's sweet good. lady, very loud, really loud. Everyone knew that Jamie Lee Curtis was around. Not like she was showy about who she was, but I think that she just has like a very, a very bright personality. Um, yeah, I totally get that from everything I've ever seen her in. She's incredibly loud. Yeah, she's a loud woman who walks in. She's not a Karen. But she's a cousin of Karen. It, it, she, she, I think she's probably the life of the party. Whatever party it is. Everyone's like, oh, it's just Jamie. Jamie being Jamie. That's right. Karen invites her to parties and she's just like, yeah, I'm going to make your party for you. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I feel like Maya Rudolph has kind of the same energy about her. Like if you invite Maya Rudolph <laughs> to the party, everyone's going to be like, wow, like good on you, Jesse, for knowing Maya Rudolph. But number two, isn't she damn charming? <laughs> <laughs> But so she's actually one of the original Scream Queens known in horror. Uh, she plays Laurie Stroden in many of the Halloween movies. She's fantastic as her. Uh, but she's the daughter of Janet Lee, who is the the actress that is killed in the shower in Psycho, um, which is kind of amazing. You know, the, the horror lineage has passed down. But he's also in The Fog, another great John Carpenter movie, um, A Fish Called Wanda, uh, True Lies, Freaky Friday, and then the upcoming last two Halloween movies, which I'm, I'm very excited for. Um, She's also in the adaptation of Borderlands from the video game, which I don't know how they got her to do that, but she's in it. <laughs> Apparently very excited. She's like leaking pictures on social media and stuff. And uh, also this movie called Everything Everywhere All at Once, distributed by A24, but also produced by Anthony and Joe Russo, director of the Avengers movies. Okay. That's, uh, uh, what is that? <laughs> how did Wait, that work? A24 got the Russo brothers and... I mean, that seems like a reversal because usually it's Disney that gets the A24 people to come and do Marvel movies for them. <laughs> I mean, I wonder if the Russo brothers are kind of tired of like doing, you know, this costs $500 million to make. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, can I also? I, I think you mentioned Freaky Friday, but like that used to be a staple for not my family, just my little brother Austin. He used to watch oh. that movie constantly. Shout out to uh, to the Strange Movie Taste Austin. <laughs> strange Movie Taste Austin, who was on a lost episode that we will never air. Um, it's gone. It's gone, and you'll never know what it is until it eventually comes out one day. It'll be about time when it comes out. I think so. I think we're all eagerly anticipating that time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we have uh, Michael Shannon, who's in everything. Speaking of everything, everywhere, all at once. Uh, he's in like Groundhog Day, Pearl Harbor, 8 Mile, Bad Boys 2, Take Shelter, Man of Steel, Nocturnal Animals, The Shape of Water, and 12 Strong, just to name a few. He's a very long, he's a very tall man, very long man. And he's always really recognizable. He's got these really intense eyes. And it, I think it's really cool that he's been around more. Um, he received a, a, two Academy Award nominations, one for Revolutionary Road, the bummer movie of all bummer movies, and Nocturnal Animals, the other bummer movie of all bummer movies. <laughs> but he's very good in both. I, have you seen either of those, Lenny? No, I haven't. Um, I feel like I've seen him in a lot of things as like a side character. Yeah. It seems like he's got one of those faces that's super recognizable and also kind of, you kind of dislike him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also in this particular movie, when I first saw the trailers for Knives Out, I thought this was Mark Hamill. For some reason, like he looks like Mark Hamill, he gives off like the Last Jedi Mark Hamill vibe. Yeah, a little bit. I, I, I guess I can see it. He's much Especially taller his than hair Mark Hamill in this movie. He is much taller than Mark Hamill, but like he, like uh, he's like see Mark Hamill next to other tall people. Out and about, I don't know. Like <laughs> well, you know, whenever he leaves his house, <laughs> I personally don't spy on Mark Hamill. Like I look. You know, I know you have a particular job taking photos of celebrities outside the mm-hmm. house. Right. But not everybody does, so I don't have the comparative experience of height. Like well, I mean, do. I'm not very good at it because I'm hanging outside of Mark Hamill's house. You know? <laughs> 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 the newspaper's like, why are you there? Go anywhere else. <laughs> why are you at the Kardashians, damn it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, why are, oh, speaking of another person, a uh, slightly more obscure person here, Don Johnson, star of Miami Vice, the coolest dude in the world back in like the 80s, and then not anymore, ever. <laughs> and now he shows up in very strange things like um, like Dragged Across Concrete. Did you guys see that one? No. Very strange. Very strange. I heard about it, never saw it. Don't. Just say that. I don't know. Someone come at me with you wanting to defend Dragged Across Concrete. See how that makes you look. Tony Collette, though, The Sixth Sense, classic. Right, fantastic. The way way back. Yeah. Did you guys see this one? I think I saw that way way back. <laughs> yeah, it's when she's uh, she's um, she's dating Steve Carell, right? And they go on like the family road trip, and it's about the the young son. And Steve Carell's like an asshole to the kid. <laughs> but Maybe uh, I haven't really seen that him. movie. It's really good. But from what I remember, Tony Collette is always like the like the disgruntled wife, woman, single mother character. Yeah. Something's always wrong with her. Yeah, like in Hereditary, it's that her family is cursed. Mm-hmm. You know, in Krampus, it's because her family is being haunted by Krampus. And I'm thinking of anything, <laughs> it's because she's being haunted by the inevitable specter of death and the time passing. You know, always haunted by something. You know, <laughs> Krampus or time, like which is more scary, right? And isn't she also in uh, Little Miss Sunshine? Oh, yeah, she is. Yes. Yeah. That's right. The mom in Little Miss Sunshine married to Greg Kinnear. Yeah, again, also going through like a crisis in life. She's she's somebody who's always having a crisis. 
She's great she, at crises. She's crises. She's great at crises. Or in this movie, yes, yeah, she proves she's great at playing Gwyneth Paltrow. I know. It's, it's yeah. really great. <laughs> <laughs> um, also upcoming Nightmare Alley, because we keep mentioning Nightmare Alley for some reason, but she's in that movie. Uh, it's coming out later this year. But uh, going over to this guy, Lakeith Stanfield. I love Lakeith. Big fan of Lakeith. Really, we have the same birthday. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but uh, we have the same birthday. Me and Lakeith, practically buddies, you know, joined you've, at the hip. You've not mentioned it, uh, but I've seen a lot that this guy's in. Like, I love Get Out. I love Atlanta, at least the first season that I've seen. Yep. And Short Term 12 and Judas of the Black Messiah, where he plays Judas. He is the Judas. Uh, William O'Neill. Fantastic. And very good. And in, sorry in, to bother you. And sorry to bother you, man. It's <laughs> just super you. strange. <laughs> and, and I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna shout out that some episodes ago, you guys talked about Judas and the Black Messiah briefly, and I, I gotta say that I love Lakeith Stanfield as the Judas character. I love the Judas character in Judas and the Black Messiah. I think that part makes the movie for me. Nice. So, uh, yeah, that's all well, I wanted I'm, to say. Well, I'm glad I'm glad you said that. Yeah, because that was the episode you were missing from when we when we talked about it. But he's also going to be in uh, the heart of They Fall. Have you seen this? This new Western that's coming out later this year. It looks I mean, really good. No, but I'm going to now. Yeah, <laughs> it's killer. Got a killer cast. Jaden Martell should be shouted out here. It's Bill. Bill Denbra from the It episode. <laughs> he stopped by in the It episode. It was really oh, cool. Bill. Really chill. <laughs> oh, Bill. He's got the, 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 the stutter. Yeah, Bill. And then we, you know, rounding out our main cast, we have our, our beloved Christopher Plummer, gone too soon, RIP, nominated for three Academy Awards for Best Supporting Actor for The Last Station and All the Money in the World, and he wins for Beginners. He's very good. Um, but he also, you know, he's, you know, he's the sound of music, Up, Inside Man, Beautiful Mind, The Insider, 12 Monkeys, An American Tale, The Man Who Would Be King. Like, he's a, he's a cinematic legend. Yeah, Do really sad he's gone. Monkeys? That, I love 12 Monkeys. I really like 12 Monkeys as well. That was another like dad movie for me where my dad showed me that movie. My dad, that that's another one of those ones where my dad told me about it, but never told me what the movie was. Oh, that's Vito's 10 Nights? That's right. That's right. <laughs> All going back to this time that I made a tent in my room and my dad would come and hang out with it, inside of it with me. And it was weird that I had a tent in my room, um, but he rolled with it. <laughs> he thought it was fine. Like I had it on the floor and then I had my bed up there, <laughs> but I slept in the tent. <laughs> of course. I, just, I liked having the tent, but he would come in and he would, instead of like telling me stories he made up, he would tell me plots of movies and without telling me the name of the movie. And it was like my lifelong quest to figure out all these movies he told me about. And 12 Monkeys was one. It took me a really long time to figure that one out. That's a hard plot to figure yeah. out. To be, <laughs> yes. To be perfectly honest. Yeah. Do you like 12 Monkeys? Lately? Yeah. Yeah. Big fan. Nice. Are there any that have been mentioned so far that you, you like really wanted to shout out, really, really enjoyed? A lot of stuff I haven't seen. Uh, nothing comes to mind. Yeah, I haven't seen Up, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, it, it was only Vito very recently. Seen, Vito hasn't seen Up. I have seen <laughs> Up. I haven't seen, seen Down. <laughs> you haven't seen the first... You've only seen the first 10 minutes. No, I've seen the whole movie. I only watched the, the first 10 minutes. What? I don't <laughs> like... I don't like the rest of it. I've seen the whole thing. I don't really like the rest of it, though. You said you only watched it. What is your What is your distinction between watched and seen? I, like, I watched the whole movie, but now I don't watch the movie. I'll just watch the first 10 minutes. That That's what I'm saying. So I've oh. seen it. 
I, I've done the whole thing, but I just like, uh, you know, uh, nothing is better than the first 10 minutes. Like, that's kind of a mistake that you opened your movie with that. <laughs> well, except for, for like the near the end when he opens a diary. I don't know. I had to deal with it's all sorts deal. of like Christopher Plummer being the bad guy running around nonsense. And then the, the, the balloons and now there's like the dog and then there's a bird, right? Isn't there a bird in that? Kevin, yes. Yeah, there's a lot of characters that are. I'm like, what are we doing here? I feel like I feel like it, it's two different movies, and it tries to reconcile it at the end, and it's it doesn't do it very well. And it's reconcile. Uh, I don't know. Let me do like up. I love up. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> the first ten minutes are amazing for sure, and maybe a whole separate thing. But it is, you know, it's sort of the the backstory. So I would have just yeah. stopped writing what I was writing after those first 10 minutes. Been like, no, nah, this is it. This is all. This is everything that we need. <laughs> this is the totality of this character's experience. Yeah, they should have also done that for Finding Nemo for the first 30 seconds, you know, when his wife and kids die. <laughs> it's a great, it's a beautiful little short film. All right there. Honestly, that is a great short film, but I'm glad we have the rest of it too. Fair enough. Fair enough. But last people just shout out Ricky Lindholm. I love Ricky Lindholm. Uh, she's she's fantastic. She's so funny. Um, Frank Oz, the beloved director. Frank Oz, the Muppet Man. The Muppet Man. The Muppet Man. Um, he plays the, the lawyer, for those of you watching. Um, Noah Sagan, I want to shout him out. Kid Blue from Looper. He's actually in every single one of Ryan Johnson's movies. Um, M.M. Walsh is here as the security guard. He's just a wonderful character actor. Very old man now. But I always love seeing him. And also Joseph Gordon-Levitt as the voice of the detective in the TV show that Anna Darmus' sister is watching in the beginning of the movie. And this is important because Joseph Gordon-Levitt is also in every movie that Ryan Johnson does. <laughs> wow. Yes. That's even if it's awesome just Easter egg. the voice of a detective on a show you can't even see. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, that's, I mean, it's a huge cast, guys. That's, that's a ton of people. Yeah, it's a lot. Just want to mention his frequent collaborators here. He works with his brother, Nathan Johnson, the composer. And he's also composed his last three movies, not Last Jedi, obviously. And then his uh, director of photography, uh, Steve Yedlin, Bob Duxey, the editor, and Ram Bergman, his producer. They all almost always work with Ryan Johnson. And they, I like that he has like this core team that he moves with because it makes everything seem very cohesive. Every Ryan Johnson movie, you're like, yeah, that, yeah, it is. I see it. It all looks similar. It makes sense. But yeah, that's all I had. Any, any, anyone else? Anything else? I think you covered just about everybody, which is impressive because there's a lot of star power in this movie. Everybody's just like, oh, I think I've seen them somewhere because you have. Everybody. It's, a, it's amazing that he got this cast all together. And the next cast for Knives Out 2 or Knives Out Too Much or Two <laughs> Knives Too Out <laughs> is, is going to be like apparently even more crazy. Yeah, it's everyone. It's everyone that wasn't in this one. <laughs> but yeah, maybe let's move into uh, some favorite scenes. Uh, Lenny, do you want to do you want to tell us your favorite scene? Sure. Uh, so my well, I had, I had many favorite scenes, but uh, one that comes to mind is the opening scene where Benoit Blanc. Well, initially not Benoit Blanc, but the other two detectives are interviewing all the family members. Um, and it's just it's just cut together in such an amazing way. The score is great. I just watched um, No Sudden Move. Uh, last night and um i I love the movie definitely hard to agree but one of the things that i think is a negative in that movie is that it's a little hard to follow what's going on i hate watching movies with subtitles but so whenever i watch a movie where i have to go back and figure out what's going on i go back and turn subtitles on for that line and then turn it off 
I had to do a lot of that for <laughs> that second move. Or you can just watch the movie with the subtitles, you know, save time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyways, yeah. So it's there's a lot of like referencing names and you're not sure exactly who is who when you're trying to figure out exactly what's going on. Right. And this movie is like the polar opposite where it's just cut together in such a great way where someone is mentioned and it's immediately shot to them and there's names on the screen and not that it's over simplistic or spoon fed, but it's just, it's a really clear visual way of introducing all the characters and uh, explaining who they are and what they're like. And it's just uh, such a great scene to kick off the movie. Yeah, you're right. It's just so visually clear because it's individually like, individually different people are like coming up to the chair and like being questioned and then it cuts to them and it's intersplicing all their different interviews and and some parts are just so telling like there's that one part where uh where walt i think one of those one of uh what's the main guy's name harlan 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 one of harlan's sons says like yeah he it was great to be by his dad's side during his 90th birthday or any second birthday, whatever, whatever birthday it is. And he's like, and it shows him like hugging his dad by the cake as his dad blows out the candles. And then later his daughter says the same thing. It was so great to be by dad. And then she's by her dad. (laughs) And then it gives you the sense of like, Oh, these people are all full of shit. (laughs) They're all like pretending to be so close to dad, even though they're, I bet they're going to totally not be. And that turns out to be the case. It's so great. There are subtle little hints like that everywhere. And also the first time I watched the scene and there's like this wall of knives all pointing, pointing towards the center <laughs> and nobody's sitting in the center though. And you're like, all right, sometime in this movie, somebody's going to be sitting at the center of that. And I want to know who that is because that's going to be interesting. Yeah. it It's beautifully told. And I love the, the dramatic, like, call back to the old you know who done it the 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 parlor mysteries right because there's benoit in the background and then at a certain point when things get a little out of hand he hits yeah. the one key and then lakeith stanfield asks like the question you know like where, yeah. where were you doing what were you doing here and i i just love is it is it uh jamie lee curtis is like all right who the f- is that <laughs> oh, wait i had a question about that i guess this is a little sidebar because we're getting out of fave scenes, but like, why on earth does he hit the piano key? Is he is he saying that's a truth, that's a lie, or asking a, sig- a question? It's a signal for Lakeith Stanfield. He asked them all the same kind of question, um, and it's a signal for him to ask that question now. I want to see the deleted scene where he taught he set that up beforehand and said, "Hey, I'm going to hit this key, ask this yeah. question." <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> then they'd be like, "Are you serious?" Oh, okay. I could just ask him the question. He's like, no, no, no. It's very important. You ask the question when I hit the key, not before. <laughs> that would have been That's funny. That's interesting. Yeah. I forget I forget what the exact question is because he phrases it slightly differently for everyone, but it, it always feels kind of jarring because it's not, um, he doesn't he doesn't loop it back in really well, you know? Yeah. It's like when we're having an off day in podcasting and we try and segue and it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Did all three of you show up around the same time that's it that's it that's that's the question he asked them all okay so he's trying to figure out like what time they all showed up so that way he can establish some arguments that they had beforehand yeah he needs he needs a timeline he, he needs to paint an accurate picture of who was where and when and how and like who had access to stuff and who didn't because that's a big thing with with richard right jamie lee curtis's um husband 
yeah. is that he supposedly went early to help, but he didn't help anybody. You know, he went there and had a fight because Harlan yeah. was going to reveal, you know, his secret. That's right. But he was uh, he was cheating on his wife. He's a cheater. He's a cheater. He's a cheater. But no, so it is a fantastic. It's 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 a brilliant set piece, and it's all just people talking and lying, and it's so fun to watch. And you're getting introduced to these thrombies, and you're like, wow, these these people suck. <laughs> these are some yeah. of the worst people I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, you like you're realizing very quickly that through their lies that they are something terrible is happening in this entire family. Yeah, and that you're gonna witness their demise. And, or not just because they're murderers, but just because they're just terrible people. They are um, the worst. Yeah, this is a fantastic setup scene. What what's what's yours though? Speaking of of people uh, full of shit, Jesse. So my favorite scene is simply when Ransom walks in because you haven't seen Ransom. He's played by Chris Evans, and he walks in to the house, acts like he owns the place, and you instantly realize this guy is like an entitled spoiled brat which is what he is from the get-go and then he walks in among the family all arguing among themselves and he is acting so smug and they're like why why are you smug and the family's not quite picking up on that and they ask him like oh were you cut out of the will and he just says yes and they start going off like oh that's, this is the best thing for you. You'll be so much better <laughs> off when you're separate from this money. And his his lines and delivery are so funny. Like his dad comes up and says, son. And then he's like, father. <laughs> <laughs> and did Harlan tell you he was cutting you out of the will? He says, yes. Um, and then they start talking about how great that's going to be. And then he tells... And then Joni's like, it won't be easy for you, but it'll be good. It'll be nothing good is ever easy. And he's like, up your ass, Joni. <laughs> <laughs> You've got your teeth bit onto this family's tit so hard. And then he just tells everybody to eat shit. He goes around and says, eat shit, eat shit, and definitely eat shit, and eat shit. And it's just it's such a great delivery because this is... It's a setup for Ransom's character, too, where you're realizing that, and you're kind of on his side, like, maybe this family is terrible, and you should rebel at this point. And that's what he's doing. And it seems like he's above everybody else for the time being, which is why he has that smug smile on his face. Yep. Yeah, it's like and he's the only one who's not obsessed with the money, at least that, at that point. Yeah, mm. that's what you think. <laughs> Or is he? Or isn't he? I actually don't... Ransom's character is a hard one. And there's actually a really important thing that happens earlier in that scene, too, is when he gets out of the car, two things happen, right? The dogs don't like him. Yeah. And when he goes up, they say, you know, Hugh Hugh Drysdale, and he goes, call me Ransom. The help call me Hugh. And that's like two things that are incredibly important for the story right away, and they're just cast off. And they they deepen his character because dogs don't like him, we don't like him. And the fact that he refers to, to... the people who work for his family as the help makes us really not like him. <laughs> but these are all like really important facts. And it, it, that's really fun. The movie just, just puts him in there and you don't know it's exposition until the revealing scene where that information becomes important. Um, yeah. Well, you know, well I, mean, I think the scene immediately previous to the one where he arrives is the one where Benoit and Marta are walking around and Benoit mentions that um, dogs like me was a good sign of character. Yes. So again, it's that that amazing editing where like one thing flows right into the other, and there's a clear 
um, you know, symbolism that uh, is very obvious and very, very well, very well done. I yeah, mean, very helpful. The weird thing is, though, like I was watching that scene because I was expecting the dogs not to like him. But if you watch it, they they're like jumping on him, right? They're not biting <clears> him. They're not growling. Tails wagging, jumping on him. Like, that's a happy dog. Thing is, he doesn't like the dogs. Like, maybe maybe that's almost more telling. Not that the dogs don't like him, but that he doesn't like the dogs. Like, he's, I don't know, treating them like, uh, like he's an asshole, because he is. Well, I mean, it seems like the movie sets up all these rules. Um, so, like, one of the rules is, if the dogs like you, they don't bark. Right. Yeah. Well, like there's the rule with Anna Darmus that she pukes when she lies. Like the movie has to set up these rules. Oh, like the, barking, the logic is very the barking straightforward. Part I can get, but like so barking like... is an automatic sign of evil, basically. Yeah, because they don't bark at Anna when she comes back uh, yeah. in, the, in the nighttime. Marta, Marta, Anna, Marta, <laughs> Darmus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess the barking part makes sense, but yeah. Uh, you immediately realize, like, oh, he's not a good guy. Yeah, not a fan of not a fan of ransom, and you just grow to distrust him more and more as time goes on. Yeah, mine was the uh, Benoit talking to the grandma. It's a very short scene, but it's beautiful. Why is grief the providence of youth? I don't know, but I'd imagine that age deepens all feelings, including grief. This was a long walk to offering condolences for the loss of your son and asking you if it isn't presumptuous of me to not think too harshly of your family, as if. I am, as I suspect, the first to console you. They're young, aren't they? One thing I do assume of age is weariness. Damned if I don't get more tired every day. Tired of what I do, following arcs like lobbed rocks. The inevitability of truth. But the complexity in the gray lies not in the truth, but what you do with the truth once you have it. I think you have something you want to tell me. I think you're very perceptive and very capable of telling me what you saw the night of your son's party. But I'll happily wait. I'm in no rush. I find it quite pleasant sitting here with you. First of all, the language is gorgeous, and yeah. very, these are complex sentences and difficult ideas, but the images that he uses are, are beautiful, just following arcs like lobbed rocks. You know, it sounds great, like lobbed rocks, right? Yeah. <laughs> but then that, that image, though, following the arcs of, almost like arcs of characters, like as if he sees this all as a play, right, happening in front of him, and he can he can see where eventually they'll be, like the, the joke he makes about gravity's rainbow, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't read it. No one ever has. Yeah. <laughs> but I like the title. Uh, but I think I think that might. I don't know. Did you guys have anything you wanted to say about that? Uh, just second everything you're saying. It's it's such an amazing scene. I, I will say maybe this is something we get into later about Benoit's character. But it seems like he sort of vacillates between almost silly and absurd and over the top, and then super super profound. And I'm not, well, maybe we can talk about that later, but. Yeah, I mean, well, we can talk yeah. about it a little bit here is, um, let's just talk about it a little bit here and then we can circle back around because there's, there's two ways in, right? But talking about Benoit, uh, he's very much like, like Hercule Poirot, right? From the Agatha Christie, um, especially Murder on the Orient Express. Like he's very kind of silly sometimes, um, very fussy with his mustache and like his way of dressing and everything. Mm -hmm. But he also cuts very quickly to the heart of the mystery. You know, I think, I think the, the master detective thing, right, if you're not Sherlock Holmes, is that you put up a facade so that people trust you more, right? So that people kind of are like, oh, he's just kind of goofy. Uh, you know, he's not threatening to me. I can lie with impunity. 
Um, and I think that's all a part of like this master stroke that he has at the end where he can, yeah, he can follow these arcs to their eventual destination because no one assumes, everyone assumes he'll get it wrong. <laughs> you know, like so this guy. You think, so you think he's putting up a facade for most of the movie? I think that when he's silly, I think it's a calculated silliness. Well, that here's the interesting thing me. though. When he's in the car and he's waiting for um, Marta to go in and meet with um, in the pharmacy. Yeah. And he's listening to music on his iPod and he's kind of dancing yeah. around. He's super silly. There's no one else there. Yeah. So he's not, he, he is just silly, right? It's not just fake. Oh. Because there's yeah. no one else around. <laughs> it's true. I don't know. Yeah. I think he's a. I guess that's why I find his character a little bit confused. I, well, is I it think confused he's a, or is that just how he is? I mean, remember why he's there. He's there because he got an envelope of money, right? Like, as soon as he gets the money, he goes, right? He's just, I don't know. He's not like a guy that's like obsessed with the truth. Um, even though he has to, he has to find it when he sees that there's a path for it. Um, He's he's a guy who just seems to really kind of enjoy life, and he likes. I think he kind of likes the stories. I think he enjoys it a little bit. Well, as he says, he didn't. He didn't necessarily come for the money. He wanted to figure out who hired him, right? The mystery that was the mystery that intrigued him. He's like all this other shit, like whatever. Who hired me? Why? Why did they hire me to do this? He it seems says pretty open money. and shut. Like, Remember, kind of, it, the, I think the, the money's a little bit of a joke, like, though. Yeah, but the detective is like, well. But you just—that was enough to get you here. He's like, it was an envelope of money. <laughs> right? it's like a fun, it it's a funny joke. Yeah, yeah. It's not, I don't think that's just a joke. I, you know, he's. I, th- there. I think I think that painting him though is just just there for money puts his character in a weird light. I don't think I don't think the movie is casting him in. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not trying to cast him as like a greedy guy. That just seems like a guy who's like. A little bit of both weighing odds, right? Like, what are the odds that this is the odds? This series is pretty good because somebody just paid me a lot of money, so clearly I have to be there. And also, uh, a, it's a whimsical sort of like uh, sort of cast for him, right? Like he wants to follow whimsies, but not the false ones. He's got to find the the good juicy ones. And what's a good juicy one? The one with the money in it. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, I guess it just it seems like almost every other character in the movie is like an archetype, right? Like Anna Armas character is like angelically good. And then all the rest of the family are different kinds of asshole. And they're, they seems not, not the two dimensional, but they're very simple characters with kind of one defining trait. And like, he seems like, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> like a whodunit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like yeah no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing at all. It's great. Uh, but it just seems like, and I enjoy his character a lot. I think he's a lot of fun, but he is, seems like the most complex. And I, I'm just, I don't know how to resolve the silliness with the, the profoundness. I, I, I guess I don't see that there's a conflict, I suppose. Yeah. Like, and I, I don't see anything needing resolving. I see somebody who just enjoys what they do. And it, it's a dude who's so comfortable in doing it that he can, he can solve these arcs of truth, as he calls them, over and over again. And like, it's not, it's not really work for him. It's 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 his play, and with play, you're always kind of silly. So I think he's a little bit silly about it, but he takes the truth seriously. Yeah, I, I was going to save this for for 
whenever when it seemed appropriate. But I think I'll use it here for you, Letney. Here, this is stupid with two O's, and you don't have a shred of evidence. You're just spinning a fairy tale. <laughs> What's also really funny about that line is when Chris Evans says it in the subtitles, because I do watch the subtitles. They spell it out with two O's. <laughs> it was like a fun joke. <laughs> okay, well. So he's easy. At least what we can all agree on is that he's a, he's a very unique detective. Like he's got stuff that harkens back to the past, but he's very unique just as a character. You know, I've never seen this guy before. Right. Have you guys seen anything approximating this besides like Poirot from the old stories? Or is this kind of a new sort of detective? I, I mean, it definitely seems like it's based on Poirot, but yeah, maybe it's kind of a, I don't know, a postmodern twist or something. Hmm. Like rather yeah. than being this elegant Frenchman, he's like this kind of, Silly Southern gentleman, goofy, profound. Tell me, tell me about Poirot. Who's that? You don't know Hercule Poirot? <laughs> Not very well. No, I know that's oh. an Agatha Christie detective. Yeah, he's 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 kind of fussy. He's very mannered, but he's very intelligent. He's he's described, I think, as small and kind of pudgy. He's because of that fussiness. He's he's quite picky, and because of his mannerisms, he's he's very very polite, like almost aggressively polite. So in the ways that they're similar is that they both know what's going on. They both figure it out, like who the key players are and what the motivations are pretty quickly. And they usually sort of wait around for that one last piece of evidence to sort of make sure that their argument is is true, you know? Yeah. yeah. And it seems, I think Perot kind of, um, or I got the Christie through Perot kind of introduced the concept of there's a murder mystery. And at the end, the detective gathers everyone in a room mm-hmm. and explains the case to everyone. So it's the yeah, big usually, reveal. Usually called a library scene, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah. but he doesn't do that in this movie, right? He, he kind of he does, does and he doesn't. He, he, he kind, kind of does, does yeah. because he's like, oh, they committed suicide. Yeah, but he, he's really doing it so Marta doesn't spill the beans on, on a lie and admit to a murder that she hasn't done, right? He actually has a motive for telling them all like, oh, no, 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 he committed suicide. All right, let's go to the other room right now. Where he only takes ransom. Yeah, well, he has ransom and the policeman, and it's like these are these are the four main players. He doesn't have to explain it to the to the thrombies. They're not important, you know. Yeah. <laughs> He's got the, the true key players here, the ones who are actually involved. Um, and in stuff like Murder in the Orient Express, spoiler for Murder in the Orient Express, if you haven't, if you don't know, but literally hit the skip ahead button. Um, you know, everyone did it, <laughs> so he has to explain it to everyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but it's like he said in the making of documentary that he wanted to have his cake and eat it too. Like he wanted to have the scene where the detective explains everything, but he also wanted it to be a little bit different. You know, and that's that's most of the stuff in this movie is like it's very similar, but it's a little twisted. He has like a little kick. Yeah, yeah so I think it, the the character of, um, oh, I'm blanking on it. Benoit. Benoit it's definitely based on, on uh, Perot, uh, but where Perot seems very fastidious and very um, OCD and careful and this is just kind of going in a different direction with the over the topness. Yeah. But it's definitely there. It's definitely the reference. Do you think Perot or any other detective that we've done in our series so far would go as far as Benoit Blanc did, which is he saw Marta's shoes at the beginning. And then from that point on, he just constantly makes a bunch of foot puns throughout the rest of the movie. He always says the game is a foot. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> or something is a foot. It's like, ah, oh, dude, you're you're referencing her shoe. I get it now. I get it now. Yeah. Second time around, um, which is really funny that they had that. But like, 
he has it basically solved. He knows Marta's the one that did it. Yep. And it's but like it's you, a little you, too much. <laughs> do you think yep. anybody, any other of our detectives would have looked further than that and would have said, no, no, she's guilty because she has blood on her shoe? I, I think for sure, as portrayed in the movie, the character of Dave Toskey would be like, yeah, sir, just get yeah. her. We need, we need to get her. Bring her in. Come on. We know it. Yeah. I think that, uh, I think that, what's his name? Marlo, right? From Big Sleep, Humphrey Bogart. I think that he definitely would, I think he'd play it kind of like Benoit does. I think he'd know there was stuff going on, but I think he'd hit it a lot harder, a lot faster, be a lot more direct about it, you know? Yeah, yeah, but it seems like Marlowe's character is like he keeps his cards close to his chest and he's waiting for the perfect opportunity to do something. But he's so very antagonistic. Like would... Sorry, what? You know, he but he's very antagonistic. Yeah, he's very confrontational. I think I think he's antagonistic enough to the point where, and we're talking about Marlowe from The Big Sleep. Uh, I think he's antagonistic enough to the point where, like, he just would have like tried to crack the case open a little too prematurely, and then ransom wouldn't have come around. And it would have ended in a shootout, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it literally would have, yeah. And then, but talking about talking about Marge, like Marge Gunderson from Fargo, or the first episode in the series, um, she's interesting because she's she's very procedural. You know, she's investigating the case, she's doing her job, she's figuring this stuff out, and she just kind of waits with that sort of patience for the case to kind of reveal something new to her, some in for her. And uh, when she finally gets that in. She, she figures it out pretty quickly. You know, like if I just, it's like when you have a difficult problem and you know you have to find some way through it and you just kind of let it sit and you think about it from a couple different angles and a few hours later, you're like, oh, okay, boom, that's the end. I feel like that's how Marge does her detecting. Like she does the groundwork, the plotting, the footwork. And then when, she's, then when she has all of her facts, she just stares at them until something makes sense. But that's almost how Benoit Blanc describes it, right? It's, it's the inevitable arc. It's just you lay the footwork for it, and it's going to land at your feet. Yeah, I think, and actually, that that's kind of what I wanted to talk about here. So Benoit, though, as you said, he figures it out like right away, and Marge doesn't figure it out for a long time. It's not until the uh, she thinks to go back to the dealership to try and find that car, but that's that's like a week into the case. You know, she has no real clue what to work off of until she begins to suspect Jerry Lundegaard. Um, which which takes a little bit of time because he's a civilian and she would have no reason to to doubt his word, right? Um, plus he's stalling her, right? Oh no, I promise you, nope. There's no there's no cars missing from this lot. Mm-mm, nope. And he's like, then he promises to go do a check, you know. But Benoit, he like right away, he's like, Marta, Marta probably knows more than literally everyone here, so we're gonna stick with her. And uh, he uncovers it really quickly. After that, he's just waiting for the pieces to fall into place. I just think he did a like. He's not a policeman, so he doesn't investigate like a policeman does, right? Yeah. He, he can make these, like, jumps in logic. Yeah, he's going with the gut, with his gut, which um, maybe makes him the best detective out of all of our detectives in our detective series. He he does. So in the Big Sleep, he has to have it explained to him. <laughs> <laughs> in Zodiac, they're pretty darn sure they found him, but he's dead now and we'll never know. <laughs> And in Fargo, she's very successful, but not before some innocent people, quite a few innocent people die, all for a little bit of money. So yeah, I think by virtue of his of his peers, he is the best. <laughs> so going to the the most famous best detective of all time, which is Sherlock Holmes, 
right? I think we could all agree that he's the best yeah. detective of all time. Yeah. Do you think Benoit Blanc has anything on Sherlock? Do you think Sherlock would have seen the blood on March's shoes and said that there's more to this story than that? I th- I think he probably. Yeah. Okay. So here's here's this. Th- let's, let's hang on. Sidebar. Oh, that's now, a good sidebar. I don't know what it is, but it's going to be good. Which Sherlock Holmes? <laughs> <laughs> Are we talking like like bare knuckle brawling asshole genius Robert Downey Jr. Oh. Or are we talking about a mysterious, pasty and pale, tall Benedict Cumberbatch? We're talking about Benedict Cumberbatch because let's be honest, he's probably smarter than Robert Downey. Now, are we talking about Benedict Cumberbatch <laughs> or are we talking about Henry Cavill in Enola Holmes? See, I haven't seen Henry Cavill in Enola Holmes, but I'm going to assume that he's dumber than Benedict Cumberbatch. Okay. And hold on. We're not talking about the Benedict Cumberbatch from the fourth season of Sherlock where he's able to predict the future. We're going right. with season one and season two Sherlock where he's able to be a very smart person. So are we talking about Benedict Cumberbatch exclusively in The Abominable Bride then? <laughs> Which one is The Abominable Bride? I the one in, 18, in the 1800s. <laughs> I don't even remember that I'm one. Just, I was just stirring. I was just muddying the waters because there's just so many Sherlock Holmes. Okay, but here. Yeah. Uh, sidebar ended. So we're talking Benedict Cumberbatch versus <laughs> Daniel Craig. Okay. Deductive skills. I think, I mean, I'm pretty sure Benedict Cumberbatch would have figured this out quicker. But I think that the way that Benoit did it, getting Ransom to confess to all that stuff in front of two police officers and then try and murder Marta was the most effective method of doing this, even if it did mean the loss of one life. Okay, so maybe, so maybe, so Benoit did it, but at the expense of Fran's life. So Fran is dead, but nobody cares about Fran, so that's okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. and She's just the help. Benedict Cumberbatch would yeah. have come in and said, you did it. Tell me why you did it. I see the blood on your shoe. But, like, would he have assumed that Marta's a good person? Whereas I don't... See, I don't think the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock has that sort of interpersonal skills that Benoit Blanc does, which allows him to make those gut decisions about calling people morally good and morally evil. Right. Which is yeah. what I think makes him a good detective in this, whereas uh, Sherlock is all all about, like, give me the facts. Give me what right. happened. Not the statistical trends of people, but Benoit Blanc is all about, like, what what is the nature of somebody's soul? And I will always go to the truth from that. That's why the truth is, I think, is inevitable for Benoit Blanc. Because if you understand somebody completely, and not just as a statistical machine like Sherlock does, then you're going to go to the truth always. So I I think Benoit Blanc might be better than Sherlock. I think he is better than Sherlock. I'm going to say that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the problem with the um, Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock is that it seems like his main power is just he's like a computer where he knows all this way of, of um, discerning clues and mm-hmm. he can connect them exactly to what they reference. Um, but it's just very this very mechanical way of going about things where the original Arthur Conan Doyle character, I, th- I think there's a lot of through line with that character and Poirot and Benoit Blanc, where I think all three of them uh, at a certain point on a certain case 
decide to let um, the murderer go because they're morally justified in their murder. Or at least, you know, it seems that way at the time that they're the murderer. Um, So it seems like this character is much more common with the the literary character than the the Benedict Cumberbatch character. That's interesting. So this is more in the style of Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock, only like a Southern Georgia man. Yeah, Yeah, and also Perot. Yeah, because that that the the written Sherlock is is fairly witty, and is also something that the show doesn't touch on too much. Like the conflict at the heart of Sherlock in the book is not that he's an inhuman, uncaring person. The conflict is that he's like an addict and is tortured by that. Yeah, <laughs> and it's a very human story. And then when you get to the Benedict Cumberbatch, you're like, he's he's an asshole. He doesn't like people. They don't like him. Also, he's an addict. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I would say that in this story, in this story, this story is uniquely suited. This case was uniquely suited for Benoit to to, and only Benoit to solve. I think. I think that's really cool. I love watching this story because it feels like this is a, just a bunch of cogs that mesh perfectly together, and maybe it's completely unfair to say Sherlock Benedict Cumberbatch is better than Benoit Blanc in this situation because, I bet he, I bet he is. But, like, I just love the fact that the story just meshes so well with itself. It's this amazing, cohesive clockwork hole that I love to watch. And I get confused looking back on it, like you were saying. But, like, watching it through, you know every beat, you know every relative, you know, like, how the story is progressing perfectly. It's not confusing, even though this plot is all, like, not all over the place, but it is, it's crazy. The tangled conspiracy. I spoke in the car about the hole at the center of this donut. Yes, what you and Harlan did that fateful night seems at first glance to fill that hole perfectly. A donut hole in the donut's hole. But we must look a little closer, and when we do, we see that the donut hole has a hole in its center. It's not a donut hole at all, but a smaller donut with its own hole. And our donut is not whole at all. <laughs> That's such a great line. Man. <laughs> Yeah, his lines are so funny. You know, there's so many puns in here. He's a punny dude. He's a very very punny punny dude. Like even when he says uh, making a a Sherlock Holmes reference, the game is a foot. It's like that's not the quote. (laughs) The game is a foot. Oh, he's like a foot because he saw her foot. Oh, oh, you little Um, bastard, Benoit. So, so talking about him though, and talking about our our detective series as a whole. You know, we just talked about those detectives. This this one does do something different in that, like what in, in the scene that I mentioned before, um, he says, tired of what I do, following arcs like lobbed rocks, the inevitability of truth. The complexity and the gray lies not in the truth, but what you do with the truth once you have it. So that one's really interesting because all of our other detective movies are about that complexity, about what happened, who's doing it, why. Uh-huh. And that question is here too. But from the perspective of the detectives in all of them, it's it's a lot different. Marge doesn't really seem, she doesn't talk about how she feels about solving the case. She's just doing her work, right? Mm-hmm. But then like Toski and Paul Avery and Robert Graysmith, you know, they all get sucked into the Zodiac case. And like Paul Avery says that Toski after years, right? It's It's been a year, detective. You gonna catch this guy or what? <laughs> and it, this obsession, this driving need to get him and they can't seem to. And there's this like clawing at things that seem inevitable. And there it seems the inevitability is that they can't get him, right? He's beyond their reach. 
And yeah. with the big sleep, it seems like the inevitability is that they're all going to be really confused. <laughs> <laughs> like I was. <laughs> uh, no, but the inevitability there seems to be more about like someone's going to crack eventually. And we all just have to like stay alive and not get backstabbed until this case is blown wide open. And I got to push the right people in the right ways to get the right reactions so that all of this can be figured out in the end. And this one seems a lot simpler for all the plot and mechanics, right? The story is this guy shows up and is like, well, he's not worried about solving the case. He knows he's going to solve it because that's what he does. You know, there's this, there's this yeah. in inherent, I solve these things. Just wonder how long it's going to take. I think that that's a, that's a new thing. We haven't seen that yet. And that discussion of the inevitability of truth and the, the outcoming of, of like sin or whatever is a weird perspective in a detective story. Yeah, it it is strange. It is strange. Um, I think it's only strange if you look outside Sherlock Holmes, who is so self-confident that, of course, he always knows he's going to solve every case. It's also, it's also part of uh, the meta whodunit, right? You're always going to know who done it at the end, and it's like it's like Benoit Blanc knows he's part of a who done it. It's like, oh, this is eventually going to come come to me so it's kind of like a meta commentary on that way i think but also i i think i i think i had just said this like a, f a few minutes ago but like it's just the inevitability of these people being these people you can follow their arcs it's not that hard to figure these people out you know the thorn thornbees thrombies thrombies you know the thrombies and you know just the, wild the, <laughs> the wild thrombies. The wild thrombies. The talking apes. Yes. Oh, Marianne, yes. <laughs> oh, Marianne. <laughs> he had such an obnoxious accent in that stupid cartoon. <laughs> Do you remember the the wild thrombies movie? <laughs> when, I, I think I saw that in theaters, yeah. When they when the monkey dressed up like a, like a woman and then they they played that song. I can't remember which band it's by, but it's like, she's a lady. <laughs> yeah, I do. I yeah. do remember that. Yep. Do, do you, do you smell that? Do you smell that smell? Well, it's comedy giving off that scent. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, we're going to steer this conversation back to the inevitability of truth. <laughs> Inevitably. Like a lot. Inevitably. Um, and what do you think, Lenny? Like, did, did you have a thought? Yeah. Um, so I listened to an episode of the Slash Filmcast where they interviewed Ryan Johnson about uh, this movie. And one of the questions he was asked was, um, is this the type of whodunit where uh, the audience has all the pieces necessary to figure it out before the end? And his answer was that um, he was less concerned with setting up that kind of situation where you have all the pieces to figure it out. And he was more interested in having payoffs, like all these, you know, references and then they're paid off in a, a satisfying way at the end um so i i feel like a lot of this movie there's a lot of breaking the fourth wall in this movie where yes the characters are doing things they are recognizing the blood in the shoe they are making connections but i think a lot of this is sort of a meta take on the um whodunit genre where there's references by the director that are for us and there's payoffs that are for us and it's almost like uh Almost like it's not real, like it's a constructed play or something that right. is more about the payoffs than about these real characters doing real things. Yeah, it's, he's making a movie, right? 
<laughs> he made a movie. Yeah. It's like, isn't it great that it's a fun movie, guys? Like, the, uh, on an interview in, in the big picture recently, they they interviewed, Sean Fennessy interviewed uh, Steven Soderbergh. And Steven Soderbergh said, there's definitely a difference between a film and a movie. He goes, yeah. He was like, so what's No Sudden Move? He goes, oh, it's a movie. Yeah, for sure it's a movie. <laughs> and I'm watching Knives Out. And I'm like, yeah, this is this is a great-ass movie. <laughs> this movie rules. Uh, because it has all that stuff you guys are, I think, are talking about, that that meta commentary. And it's just, it, it's it's having so much fun existing as a movie. You know, we have all these like nice character caricatures and pastiches of people yeah. that are shitty <laughs> and we see them all get their comeuppance and the good person wins out in the end. Yeah, like I love this simplicity. Like usually I hate movies that are super meta and talking about other movies because it's just like, man, just enjoy yourself for once. And this movie enjoys itself throughout. Like it's such a fun time. Like uh, part of the reason why I think I enjoy it the more I watch it is because like, you know, there's more payoffs. Like, some payoffs are subtle in this movie. Like, when, um, what's his face? The husband. What is his face? Don Johnson? Yeah, Don Johnson. The actor? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he is the husband to Jamie Lee Curtis, right? And he is going to look for evidence that uh, he is cheating on his wife, which he totally is. And Harlan, like, waves a redder, letter around saying he's going to send it to her, right? So he goes and finds the letter realizes there's nothing inside it's a blank letter and he gets so frustrated that he throws a baseball outside the window and then the dog picks up that baseball and then at the end of the movie the dog is in the study and then jamie lee curtis puts back the baseball and then finds a blank letter in which she finds that uh her husband is cheating because of course you have to uh put a lighter underneath the letter because they Mm -hmm. communicate in a secret language which is also you thought maybe would be um, like a different payoff. Like maybe she was lying. Maybe her dad doesn't talk to her because she mentions that in the interview, but no, they literally communicate in a secret language and like coded messages to each other. And that's really cool. That's like two payoffs at once for her to finally realize that her husband is cheating on her. It's amazing. That's two payoffs right there. Yeah. It's great. And just, just, just to have the thought to like, how do I get her in the study to get the letter in an innocent way. You know, how am I going to do that? <laughs> a baseball. Okay. Okay. We got something. We were cooking here. Like that's, it's, it's next level creativity. Uh, yeah. In, in my opinion. It's not just yeah. a baseball. It's a baseball that her husband threw out in frustration. Yeah. Ah, it's beautiful. It's this, uh, it's this poetic justice moment because yeah. of his own hand. Yeah. His own hand. Um, but speaking of these thrombies, I have another one. Sidebar. I got another one. Okay. All right. Whose wardrobe do you want the most in this movie? Clearly the Nazi masturbator. (laughs) (laughs) Bill? You want Bill's wardrobe? Bill Denbro? Oh, Bill. Um, Dude, personally, I'm a ransom kind of guy. I'm probably going to have holes in my sweater. Yeah. Yeah, you definitely do have holes in your sweaters. Yeah, yeah probably I, all of I, them. You know, I have a hole in a, a disturbing number of my clothes. I'm not going to name them, <laughs> but, I, but I have holes in them. Yeah, yeah I'm just going to go with Ransom because of that. Nice. How about you, Lenny? Uh, it's definitely not my style, but I love Benoit Blanc style. The suspenders nice. and the multicolored suits and the it's all great. He I, looks I, good. I, yeah, I want, great. I want what he's wearing in the final scene. 
Yeah. That's with what a I tie want to tucked into the shirt. With the tie suspenders. tucked in and the suspenders. <laughs> and you know, he's got like, he's probably got stay tights on his shirt. So it stays perfectly in there. Yeah. Like he just looks so crisp and like ready for anything. Yeah. Oh my gosh. No, I loved all the costuming in this movie though. It's all so distinct. Um, Jamie Lee Curtis is like pink pantsuits, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, and uh, what's, what's the, the daughter's name? Um, yeah. And her like weird goth, like street punk uh, grunge thing that she has going. Just everyone just looks very distinct from each other, you know, and, and uh, Anna de Armas, she's got just very nondescript, just workable clothes, right? She's a professional. She works in this place and she dresses like it. Yeah, I just love, I love everyone. I love that that Michael Shannon's character has that cane, Yeah, you know? And like in the scene when he confronts, um, when he confronts Anadarmas behind her apartment, he's so menacing, but also like his clothes hang off him. Like he kind of looks like a scarecrow. He's so gangly yeah. and it makes him more menacing. I, I love all the stories that the costumes tell. They're all like unique little characteristics of each character that he would wear that, he would wear that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that scene is so cool. The the audio of that scene where like there's the thumps of him hitting his cane on the ground, and there's like the squeaking of him gripping it really tight. Mm-hmm. It's just so great. That's wonderful, amazing. Okay, well, end sidebar. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure we got that in there. Okay, so turning to uh, a final question then. So in all these detective stories that we have, luck does play a part in all of them. It it plays a part in some of the breaks in the cases. It sometimes it's bad luck, like in the case of Zodiac, like when they have the shooting uh, of the taxi driver and the wrong APB goes out for the wrong race of person. And so the police look for the wrong guy and they pass a dude who definitely did it, but they didn't pick him up because he was the wrong race. That's bad luck. You know, there's Mm. nothing else that can be put down to that's that's force majeure. And it sucks because maybe it could have all been ended right there. But then some good luck is the fact that Marge has a meeting in Fargo with that, with, with her old classmate. And she realizes that you can't actually trust some of these people that come up to you and tell you certain things, right? Because she finds out that his wife didn't die at all. That's luck, again, playing a role, the hand of God, if you will. And then she magically stumbles upon the cabin that they're all staying at with, uh, with the car. That's right. right. At the lake. Because she listened to a tip. Like, that's all incredibly lucky. Yes. Yes. And I think even people like, who have done police work that I've known a few police officers in my day who've done this work, you know, they say that these things just sometimes happen, right? Yeah. You don't question it. This happens. But for Ben, for this movie, right. Once you, once you start to tease it apart and pull it apart, just like what you were talking about, Jesse, with the baseball, it is believable, but it's lucky uh-huh. because my dogs, if I threw a ball out of my window, I would, I would, that I would never see that ball again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, I, like it's just certain things like that. The the blood on the shoe, for instance, very very lucky. Everything that happens is so lucky. Does that make Benoit Blanc a worse detective if so much of it is down to inevitability? Is he is he just sort of fated by the universe to be present at the at the end of the arc of the lobbed rock to catch the truth bomb, or is he actually doing detective work? It's both. Um... Because I think the inevitability of truth involves uh, both like, you know, it's, it's funny that they compare the inevitability of truth to like Newton's laws, right? That's going to, an object is going to arc, right? And through Newton's laws, you can have a scientific equation that'll tell you with all certainty, this is where something's going to land if thrown this force. 
and it seems like that's what he's doing, right? There are some people who have a plot, namely uh, Harlan and Ransom. Their plots merge together um, to create this murder conspiracy. But then there's also an awful lot of luck. And the luck, though, is usually contingent on human factors, right? It's contingent on Marta being a good person. Like, she makes, she is a monkey wrench in Ransom's plot, right? She is the luck there, to some degree. Because she's a good nurse, she figured out which vial she should take. Because she's a good person, she um, resuscitated Fran, or at least tried to. Um, instead of being pinned, uh, having friends murder pinned on her. So it's, I think with Benoit Blanc, it's uh, it's not the fate of the universe. It's his being perceptive, not just of the, the track of objects, but the track of people, right? Which makes all of his detective work not, not just about luck, not just about like being at the right place at the right time, but somehow having like this perceptive idea of like a, of people's souls and how the universe works in general. That's, that's a neat summation. I, yeah, I think, I think that just, and just because I didn't include the big sleep prior when I asked that question, um, I think that in, I I don't think there's any luck in the big sleep. I think everything happens pretty much according to chance. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. That's all luck. It's just just like, it's luck for who really is the question. (laughs) Well, and in the big sleep, isn't the end, conclusion that it doesn't the truth doesn't matter right yes it doesn't matter who did what it's just are the good guys succeeding at the end like did everything work out for the right people most of of the people who did whatever it was that happened most people who did whatever it was that happened in the big sleep are dead so you know (laughs) like in the story they're dead so i guess why do we figure it's like the ending of burning burn after reading right just like oh yeah what did we learn (laughs) i guess not do it again uh well, thank you, Jesse. That was that was that was I think was a very good answer to the question, especially well, especially in, in terms of how luck is working here. Yeah, great. Well, we forgot to at the beginning of the episode, is where we usually do this, uh, say when and if we will show this to our kids. <laughs> oh yeah. So we're gonna smush it here in the end. Uh, I for sure will. I will probably do it maybe 13? Maybe 13. What do you think, Jesse? I think I would do it younger. Like I have a... Well, all right. I'm going off of like a vision of who done it that I uh, that I'd already watched when I was younger. And the thing is, the black and white who done it are, are kind of easier in some ways. But this movie's really not hard to watch, except for maybe I don't want my kids to tell me to eat shit all the time like Ransom does. So yeah, that that's the only drawback. There's some language like that. And I don't want my kids to um, to use it right now. I want them to have some basic control of other parts of their bodies first. Yeah, you show this to a nine-year-old kid, he's going to tell everyone he knows to eat shit. That's true. Especially when it's Captain America saying it. So, yeah, maybe just hearing you say that, maybe 13 is an appropriate age, um, and then I'd probably watch other whodunits, because also, that's another thing. I This seems like a meta-commentary on whodunits in general. So I wanted to give them some background in that first and make sure they have that before showing them this. So 13 seems like a good age for that because they would have watched them by then. What, what about you, Letney? Uh, since you are self-proclaimed not a dad and self-proclaimed not a father, but when you get around to it. 
Yeah, I mean, I'd second everything Jesse's saying. I mean, uh, I think uh, the old like uh, Poirot TV show, you could watch those at any age, and we grew up watching those. You know, that the, they're not, you know, offensive. They're not, even though they're about murder, they're not gory or anything. And, you know, it's just a mind puzzle. It's, it's interesting trying to figure out what's going on. And um, the language in this definitely makes it something that needs, probably needs to be, you need to wait till they're teenagers or something. Eat shit. Um, and also, sorry. What? <laughs> <laughs> eat shit. Eat shit. Definitely eat shit. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and again, like, because it's a meta commentary on whodunits, yeah, it's great to have that foundation before you get to this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you'll just enjoy it more, right? Yeah. Because you, because I think I wonder if, if watching this one, if it makes the other ones sort of less fun, right? Because you've seen this like splashy greatest hits version of it, and then to go back to the singles, you're like, eh, okay, you know. <laughs> but yeah. if you build up to it in in your catalog, maybe it's like a, it it itself is a nice uh, payoff, you know. Yeah. For all the is. setup that you've been doing. Yeah. Um. And then I'm going to say it's a dad movie, right? Is this unanimous? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, for absolutely. sure. This Go. is a classic modern detective whodunit. It's it's so nice in in all this hard all this hard new releases that we've had to cover that we've all just been kind of like, uh, it's a dad movie or <laughs> no, it's not a dad movie. It's nice for a movie that came out in the last several years. We're like, yeah, yeah, this is one of those ones that we like went out to look for. This is one of the ones that when we started this show, we're like, yes, can't wait to do that. That'll be that'll be cool. Yeah. This is a new classic, I think. I, I think, think I so. can say that definitely. Yeah, this is a new yeah. classic. Yeah. For sure. Boy. Yeah, when I first uh, watched this, I gave it a six out of ten. And now it's up to a nine out of ten for me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm at I'm at four and a half stars. I I think it's I think it's technically perfect in every way, just like Mary Poppins, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I can't, I can't think of something I, I dislike about it, but I also haven't been looking at it. Every time I watched it, I have not been in the critical mindset. I just get so drawn into the story. I kind of forget to do that. This is one of those few movies that I, I don't just sit there like coldly watching and catching everything. I'm just like, wow. Yeah. What did happen? I forget. How did this work? Yeah. That's the thing about this movie. It's not in. So sometimes with whodunits and detective movies, they make you into a mini Sherlock Holmes. Right, they like sh- they want you to shut off your emotions and just think about it, or fool you into something, and you're like, "No, you're not gonna fool me." And this movie, it's just it's so warm and inviting. It's like, "Oh, this is a drama. Get involved because this is crazy and interesting." And yeah, every time I watch it, I'm like, I- I'm drawn in. It doesn't matter how like it. Like, usually I don't watch a movie if I've watched it in the past, like, six, eight months. And I did that for this movie, and I was like, oh, man. This is this has me engaged all over again. Um, it, it's, yeah. it's just so surprising that 20 minutes in, you're like, okay, so I know how this went. How is she going to get out of it? You know? It's like almost not even a whodunit, because you're certain you know whodunit. Because yeah. you saw what you saw. You saw the information, you saw the characters react, and you're like, so it's just a tightening noose around Marta. That's what we're here to watch. Like, that makes me super uncomfortable. Right. Um, and then that the slow reveal of it not being that way. Yeah, it's just it masterful. Masterful. Man. Wish this, I wish these were new releases. Why can't this be a new release now? Yeah. Gotta, and, and also, frankly, it's also, like, I know some of the characters are two-dimensional, like you were saying, Lenny, but also Ransom 
has some more stuff going on to him. I I want to I want to understand that character a little more. So to find out that he's the villain, it's like, well, wait a second, why? Why did you do all that? Is it just because you're a spoiled brat? Is there something a little more going on here? Yeah, and also like Harlan in general, like what is Harlan doing? Like, it's funny we haven't even talked about the the dad most part of this movie, which is like he's a dad, like reneging on his terrible past and trying to set all of his kids straight. Right, right. And why is he doing it now? Like, what is he? Maybe he wants everybody to be like Marta, and the fact that he gives everything to Marta is really cool. There's a lot. There's a lot to be really involved with, and a lot that's kind of interesting to think about when you're watching this movie beyond the who done it. Yeah, I mean, talking about uh, Ransom's character, there's an interesting callback where I think in the the scene where Marta and Harlan are up in the attic and they're playing the game, and Harlan's talking about Ransom he mentions how similar he and Ransom are and how he starts describing him and Ransom and how Ransom uh, is arrogant and spoiled and he plays life like it's a game, like it's not real. And it does seem like that there's a payoff for that in the conclusion where Ransom, uh, he's just playing this game, you know, and he feels like he's above everyone and he's safe and nothing's gonna, bad's going to happen to him because he's spoiled and he's rich and, He's just, he's playing this game where he's manipulating everyone to get what he wants, but not simply out of greed, but more about enjoying the game, you know? Right. Like, Um, like Harlan. uh, Yeah. And and also like Marta, because she enjoyed the game of go to make a beautiful puzzle, but, or a beautiful pattern, but that's also um, like Ransom wasn't able to beat Harlan as much because it's not beautiful, but he's just able to enjoy it a little more. Maybe he's able to get more into into this placing of tiles. We, we need to have, we need to have someone on who, who knows how to play go to describe that <laughs> for me. <laughs> See, I, that's one of the few board games I haven't played. I haven't played go, but let me, when, when you come move in with me, we'll play go. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. I think that about wraps it up. You guys happy? I'm happy. Yeah. Great. Well, uh, it's been a, a real pleasure doing the detective series. Uh, we are bidding adieu to it. What are we doing next, Jesse? It's going to be pretty modern, but also oh. old. Mmm, dusty. Mmm, dusty. Uh, maybe a little bit of uh, maybe a little bit prickly from all the cacti around. Uh, oh we yeah. We may have uh, literal horseshit. All literal horseshit. <laughs> that shit, Jesse. That is going to be my <laughs> new podcast costume. Guys, we're going to do modern westerns. Modern westerns. So the cutoff date was 1990. Anything after 1990. Uh, and we will be announcing those titles soon. Um, but join us there in the Dusty Prairie. I'm sure there'll be some new releases scattered in there. Um, and yeah. And Mike, uh, out there listening... Hope you're doing well. Uh, I hope you have not moved into van life. If you do, you need to tell us sooner rather than later, dude. <laughs> and I'm Mike. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So re- ready? It'll be it'll be me. Jesse is Mike. Then Letney. Then Jesse. Okay. Ready? Uh, and for not your father's movies, I'm Vito. I'm Mike. I'm, I'm Jesse. <laughs> Just, no, I'm Jesse. <laughs> All right. Good night. Who's who? <laughs>